0: Daily News and Analysis. We keep you informed and
1: inspired.
0: This is World Today.
1: Chinese Premier Li Qiang has outlined a roadmap to achieve the country's economic targets. China and Vietnam have vowed to jointly safeguard the peace in the South China Sea. Beijing stands firm against Washington's tariffs on steel and aluminum imports. And China wraps up efforts in robotics applications. You are listening to Road Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Gae Anna in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Road Today. Chinese Premier Li Qiang has stressed the importance of a precise and targeted macro policy in realizing the year's economic goals and promoting high-quality development. Li made the remarks at a plenary meeting of the State Council on Wednesday. Li said efforts should be made to expand domestic demand, build a modernized industrial system, and speed up the digital transformation of the manufacturing sector. Li also emphasized the greater efforts should be made in promoting reform and opening up, stabilizing foreign trade, and encouraging greater international investment. For China's economic deployment and more, joining us on the line is Professor Liu Baocheng, Director of the Center for International Business Ethics at the University of International Business and Economics. Thanks for joining us, Professor. Hi there. What's your overall impression of the government's economic priorities and strategies for the upcoming month? Any specific signals or key takeaways that you gathered from Premier Lee's statements?
2: The overall effort is really to uh, counter the challenge of uh, economic slowdown so that we can really achieve the target of around 5% growth. And in the meantime, we have to maintain high-quality growth in that we go for digitization and also uh, for uh, environmental uh, upgradation. And uh, in the meantime, we have to address a number of uncertainties on a global horizon because China is heavily dependent on imports and exports. And uh, uh, therefore, this is not really an easy task. However, we can see that the macro policy is really heading uh uh, more favorably towards, number one, the consumption side, and the other is uh, investment, uh, particularly uh, in uh, two areas. One is uh, in infrastructure development. The other is the uh, digital transformation by supporting a number of uh, uh, companies who really uh, engage in pioneer work uh, because the uh, choke points that we face by the sanctions of uh the United States in particular.
1: Mm -hmm. Professor Premier Li Qiang highlighted seeking progress while maintaining stability. How does this value align with China's broader economic trajectory and the challenges it currently faces?
2: Well, currently we are facing a number of uh, daunting challenges. Uh, Number one is uh, high quality growth because right now, When we go for a digitization and uh, mechanization or robotization, we need high-quality people. So right now, uh, the uh, supply of the labor force is not really fully uh, in compliance with the stringent requirement for high-quality growth. So therefore, that calls for a long-term and painful uh, transformation of the Chinese education industry. And uh, then you know the there uh we are also facing the uncertainties in the geo economic situation uh where the uh, global economy is picking up a little bit but uh, it won't really uh, achieve more than 3% of the growth rate so when china is uh, uh interdependent with the world economy and uh, we also have to face the uh challenges uh from the global marketplace uh, but having said that, uh, you know, as you have uh, just reported, the Chinese uh, investment, both domestically and outbound, uh, we do see uh, quite a surge uh, in the uh, first uh, in the first half of this year.
1: Then, Professor, how has the government been addressing these challenges, as you just uh, mentioned?
2: Well, you know, there are three drivers for economic growth. Uh, uh, they are the uh, investment, the consumption and export. So right now uh, the uh, heaviest driver would be the conception. so therefore the government is uh, very much dedicated to boost the conception. Uh, but my understanding is that uh, you know conception is uh, uh, dependent on the stability of uh, the job opportunities and the possible increase of household income. So therefore, the focus really uh, not instead of you know the giving some coupons or uh, some of the quotas for people to buy, and so uh, to stabilize the job market and also uh, to provide more of the social security for the general public would be a ultimate solution. And the other uh, you know for the investment we can see that um, more of the local governments are given more of the franchise to uh, issue bonds, to collect money, to engage in infrastructure development. So that can really directly contribute to the growth of the Chinese GDP. Uh, in terms of uh, export, uh, because the uh, deceleration of global order, Chinese exporters are facing uh, a number of challenges, but in uh, uh, when the RMB is is depreciating against the U.S. dollar, uh, hopefully this can really alleviate some of the pressures of those uh, 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 exports. But uh, uh, I think now uh, we also need uh, more policies to support the foreign investment uh, Mm. into China because they are the catalyst for the Chinese exports. And in the meantime, they are able to contribute to the high quality growth both in technology and also in corporate management.
1: Mm -hmm. Professor Premier Li mentioned the need to accelerate the pace of digitization in manufacturing sector to achieve the high quality development. How might this digital transformation of the manufacturing sector influence China's global competitiveness and the nature of its exports? Well,
2: China is Uh, at a critical point, and there is no other alternative but to boost the uh, high-quality growth through uh, digitization. And right now, uh, China does really enjoy competitive advantage, both in some of the technological breakthroughs, but more importantly, in the application of the digital uh, technology, uh, be it in e-commerce, in smart manufacturing, in communication with the rest of the world, and uh, so this way uh, it it contributes to uh, not only the tangible part of the uh, growth rate, but also the high quality service people can really enjoy. So the uh, take, for example, uh, uh, you know more of these uh, live streaming is uh, not only helping uh, those you know farmers who can really get better connected with the. Uh, uh, and market by themselves, uh, you know, uh, going, uh, you know, across uh, some of the uh, intermediaries so that they can make more money. And uh, also, uh, we can also provide more of the uh, variety of entertainment, particularly for the younger generation. And this is really something that is high-end uh, service. And we do see that a, more of the uh, Chinese people are uh, taking advantage of the. Uh, digital world to, uh, uh, either to receive leader or to boost their own businesses, particularly for those proprietors, uh, because we have abundant of them. Uh, you know, they are growing from the, uh, small businesses and hopefully, hopefully into more of the hidden champion and to go for, uh, you know, the uh, more collaboration with, uh, bigger companies and, uh, for further growth.
1: Professor, earlier you mentioned the investment uh, environment in China. The Premier discussed uh, the reforms and opening up and improving the business environment for uh, state-owned enterprises, private companies, and foreign enterprises. What are the key areas for reform in this regard in the coming period?
2: This is really the key issue because, uh, uh, however, the uh, tough the global environment as long as China maintains an integrated market discipline. And uh, when all the market players are given equal status and get engaged in fair competition, there is no other force that can really destabilize the Chinese economic growth. So, right now, we see that uh, the central government is so much uh, so highly committed to provide a uh, fair and a equitable. Uh, market landscape. But uh, the challenge lies in how these uh, policies can be translated and understood and implemented by uh, the local governments, And because right now we do see that uh, the uh, many of the local governments uh, have a high level of discretion over how they address, particularly the private sector and also the foreign businesses. And uh, we also notice there is uh, sort of a nationalistic sentiment that uh, really uh, is there to to shun away from foreign investment. So this is really something that uh, we need uh, further uh, policy forces to drive down so that we can really have a, a business friendly environment, both in policy, in law and also in the uh, actual implementation uh, across the board for the entire China. Mm
1: -hmm. Professor, one last question. Not long ago, U.S. Treasury Secretary Yellen said uh, that China's economic slowdown could pose a risk to the global economic development. Based on China's performance in the first half of the year and its deployment in the coming months, what do you make of such argument?
2: Well, this. It's really groundless. And uh, of course, you know, on one hand, it shows how important is China in the global economy. And uh, uh, Chinese growth contributes to uh, more than 30 percent of the whole, whole world growth. So, uh, you know, how much more can they expect China? But of course, you know, we wish that uh, China could do more. Uh, it does not only help the uh, world economy for stabilization and recovery, uh, but also it helps China. To achieve uh, more than the target that sets forth by the Chinese government, which is around 5 percent growth rate. And uh, uh, merely by holding China responsible, that's uh, sort of uh, moral hijacking. And uh, China has its own way to address a more balanced approach, uh, because we are not only going for economic uh, uh, growth, but also we need to have a holistic approach to balance between environmental quality, the job quality, uh, digitization, and uh, modernization in addition to uh, economic figures.
1: Mm-hmm. Thanks, Professor, for your insightful analysis of Premier Li Qiang's recent statements and the implications they hold for China's economic landscape. That's Professor Liu Cheng, Director of the Center for International Business Ethics at the University of International Business and Economics. Coming up, China and Vietnam have vowed to jointly safeguard peace of the South China Sea. You are listening to World Today. Stay with us.
0: Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievsk Teixeira. I'm a professor of Public Policy and Management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of The World Today. In my opinion, The World Today is one of the best China radio programs. In The World Today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please, come to join us.
1: You've been listening to Road today. China and Vietnam have vowed to jointly safeguard the peace of the South China Sea. China's top diplomat Wang Yi and Vietnam's deputy prime minister Chuan Lu Quan made the pledge during the 7th China-South Asia Expo, which opened in the Chinese city of Kunming on Wednesday. Wang emphasized ASEAN unity and the importance of strengthening bilateral ties. Chuan affirmed Vietnam's prioritized relations with China, advocating high-level exchanges, and robust cooperation. Both leaders committed to safeguarding political and institutional security and maintaining peace in the South China Sea, rejecting external disruptions. So for more on their meeting and the China-South Asia Expo, let's bring in Dr. Yang Yu, research fellow at China Institute of International Studies. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. Dr. Yan, recently the South China Sea issue has been stirred up again by some Western media and politicians. How do you yeah. view the statements made by China and Vietnam at this point?
0: Well, I think that the joint statement uh, made by two sides uh, send two signals. Firstly, the two sides uh, uh, expressed their determination, joint, joint determination to strengthen further bilateral relations between the two great countries. By all means, in all dimensions, including security areas, which is uh, are relatively sensitive uh, than the other areas, uh, more sensitive than the other areas between the two countries. Um, but secondly, uh, regarding to the recent uh, uh, instability in South China Sea by some country and plus some external players, as you mentioned, uh, the two countries. Uh, send a very clear and a strong signal that uh, the two countries, Vietnam and China, will make a, a more efforts and a stronger joint effort, uh, cooperation to keep the peace and the stability of such Chinese rather than uh, to stir up further the the situation in here. Uh, in other words, the two countries send a signal uh, by saying, the differences regarding to the issue of South China Sea should be, uh, dealt with and, uh, should be, uh, solved in peaceful manner, in cooperative manner, rather than the, the, uh, confrontational manner like some countries play now. Uh, in short, the joint statement by the two senior, uh, representatives from the two countries uh, Makes it very clear that uh, only we uh, insist on the peaceful manner for all cooperation and uh, dealing with all differences, then everyone uh, can get win win results uh, benefited for all parties, or we will fall in uh, loose loose uh, results for every
1: party. The Deputy Prime Minister said uh, developing relations with China has always been the top priority of Vietnam's foreign policy. How do you evaluate the relationship between China and Vietnam today from his remarks?
0: Uh, in my view, the Deputy Prime Minister's uh, remarks are, uh, about the bilateral relations is uh, on one hand a conclusion for the past uh, uh, development of the bilateral by- relation. On the other hand, the vision for the future development of the bilateral by- relation. He, uh, re- regarding to the conclusion, uh, the Vietnam side, uh, the Vietnamese uh, uh, diplomats and the senior official uh, concluded that the, their foreign policy on China, their policy on China, uh, has been always put at the top priority, and uh, Vietnam-China relations. As also the key one of the key pillars in uh, Vietnamese uh, relations, and vice versa, uh, actually uh, it, it is a mirror for China's foreign policy regarding to the, uh, Vietnam. And in terms of the uh, uh, vision of the future development, I think uh, Vietnamese senior official expressed not only their willingness for further uh, development of the bilateral relations. All dimensions with China, but also reflects China's determination, willingness, uh, of, uh, the willingness of the same, the same willingness for uh, the uh, future for the bilateral relation. Uh, therefore, I think the uh, uh, remarks from both sides indicate that uh, China-Vietnam bilateral relation will enter a new phase for better future.
1: Dr. Yang, external interference remains a significant concern for both countries in the region. Could you elaborate more on the specific challenges posed by external forces today?
0: Yeah, it's a very uh, good question. Actually, you are touching a very uh, critical point regarding the situation in this region. Uh, In my view, uh, the external interferences uh, in this region uh, as well as uh, countries in this region are always uh, they have very serious challenges facing all the countries here. Uh, the the, the so called external uh, interferences uh, can be uh, divided into set, uh, two uh, categories. One category of uh, external interference uh, uh, is relating, uh, is about uh, external interferences on the affairs among countries within this uh, region, for example, uh, among claimants on the South China Sea issue. Uh, Actually, there have been several claimants on South China Sea. However, the issue, the uh, the differences on the claimants should be and could be solved by the directly registered parties, say, all the claimants. However, unfortunately, the external players like the United States, that, uh, which has no any business relations to the climate, to the differences, always try every effort to interfere the process of the uh, uh, solution for the differences, I mean the sub, uh, differences on sub-China sea. So this is a uh, very serious uh, external interferences. Uh, external player like the U.S. interfere the process of the uh, solving differences on South China Sea can only contribute to more complicated, even more dangerous results uh, for the issue. Uh, that is the one kind of external interferences, say, uh, interferences on issues re- uh, among countries within this re- uh, region. And the second category of the external interferences this in all countries in this region is U.S. policy always try to interfere every country in this region about their respective domestic issues because U.S. foreign policy always is driven by two wheels. One wheel is their national interest, and the other wheel is the so-called American value. Based on these two wheels, U.S. always try to input their the so-called American value. Onto every individual Asian country, say, four Asian countries for follow their American values, uh, the so called American style of a democracy and a freedom. Uh, so, such interferences uh, uh, really put serious uh, challenges for every Asian country's uh, domestic stability and sustainable development. So, in short, for sustainable development and sustainable both for the country, both at the country level and the regional level, we should make all efforts to prevent our regional affairs and the domestic affairs from being prevented by the external players, especially from the United States.
1: Thanks, Dr. Yang, for insightful analysis and expert perspective on the closer cooperation between China and the South Asian countries. Hope the countries in this dynamic region continue to forge ahead undeterred by external interference, as you suggested. That's Dr. Yang Shuyu, research fellow at Chinese Institute of International Studies. More to come, Beijing stands firm against Washington's tariffs on steel And aluminum imports. China ramps up efforts in robotics applications, and Beijing, along with Barcelona and Toronto, has been rated as the most suitable cities for remote work. For more, you can follow us on Twitter, it's CDTN Radio. We'll be back after a short break.
0: Welcome, I'm Elav Elard, economics professor and member of the data science and AI center at New York University, Shanghai. On the World Today program, you can find in depth and impartial insight as well as critical commentary on key trends in the Chinese economy, financial technology, business and blockchain. To prepare for the world tomorrow, join me on World Today.
1: Welcome back to World Today with Mika Anna in Beijing. Beijing has defended its countermeasures against Washington's tariffs on steel and aluminum imports from China. In response to a World Trade Organization ruling in favor of the United States in the dispute, China's Commerce Ministry says the root causes of the problem in this case is unilaterally and protectionist moves by the United States. It stresses that China's countermeasures are legitimate actions in safeguarding the country's legal interests. The Trump administration imposed tariffs on China's steel and aluminum in 2018, citing national security interests. In response, China imposed additional duty on some U.S. imports. So for more on this, my colleague Zhao Ying spoke with Dr. Zhang Gong, professor with the University of International Business and Economics, Israel.
3: How do you look at the WTO ruling, which says Chinese duties on U.S. imports are inconsistent with WTO obligations?
4: Well, I think in general, these types of um, retaliatory or punitive uh, tariffs are, in my opinion, in general, not so much consistent with the WTO uh, spirit, which is all about free trade. Now, we have to put things into context uh, in that these are in response to the tariffs, I mean, imposed by the Chinese government uh, in response to uh, Donald Trump's uh, tariffs first. So uh, I think, um, you know, from China's perspective, this is being retaliation. This is to protect uh, Chinese interests. You know, it's okay. I think WTO make their ruling. uh, Essentially, it's uh, criticizing on both sides, basically, right? Uh, You know, We have to note that previously there was already a ruling uh, from the same panel of saying that the United States tariffs are are inconsistent with WTO obligations in any case. So, um, you know, this is a criticism slap on the wrist on both sides.
3: Well, as you said, China's tariffs are in response to then-US President Donald Trump's Steel and aluminum tariffs, and in December two thousand twenty-two, the WTO ruled that the U.S. measures violated WTO rules. Then, why are those tariffs still in place?
0: Well, the problem
4: is that the WTO cannot uh, enforce its rulings with teeth. Um, it's a teethless organization. You know, it's, uh, it's essentially a statement and announcement. You know, a sovereign nation has the right to uh, respect or reject. Uh, this ruling from WTO. Uh, America has a history of uh, rejecting these rulings you know, quite, quite a couple of times in the past. Uh, in this case, the Biden administration decides uh, not to um, heed WTO's calls, actually. And these tariffs are still in place. But I think in this case uh, for China, my feeling is that, my projection is that the, uh, the Ministry of Commerce will probably uh, appeal the case at WTO uh, and uh, we'll see what's going to happen next.
3: Well, China's Ministry of Commerce argues that China's countermeasures are necessary to safeguard China's legitimate interests. Uh, so, how would you evaluate the validity and strength of China's legal arguments in this particular case?
4: Well, this um, statement uh, to safeguard uh, China's legitimate interests, in, in a sense, essentially saying that it uh, essentially this is a metaphor for. You know, we have to do something in response, in retaliation, and that's what exists. You know, it's just a better way of saying this, more polite way of saying this. Um, so, I think as long as the tariffs are in place by the United States government, the uh, Chinese tariffs are still going to be in place as well. The Chinese government imposed these tariffs uh, after Washington tariffs are imposed first. So, um, if they don't remove these tariffs, I don't think Chinese government is going to remove uh, China's tariffs.
3: Yes, but, you know, Washington <clears throat> argued that their measures were to safeguard America's legitimate interests. So, I mean, how can countries differentiate between genuine protectionism and legitimate defense of their economic welfare in the context of trade actions?
4: Well, I think um, the the whole idea behind Donald Trump's actions is based on this argument about national security and The problem is that national security is totally abused. It's broadly interpreted uh, well beyond um, the original uh, intended definition of national security as uh, specified in the WTO agreement, which is called the GATT agreement. Article 21 uh, essentially says national security has a very narrow interpretation. Uh, But unfortunately, um, Russia started to totally broaden that argument um, it's a cover, essentially it's a cover for violating the spirit of the WTO and ignoring its WTO obligations. I, I think uh, there are many reports and uh, acquisitions and allegations in the past that uh, the Trump administration is essentially going to write up the WTO. You know, it's, it's, it's not, I mean, it's doing everything to uh, store the, uh, the, the appointment of uh, dispute settlement panel members. Uh, it's intended to Um, make WTO not function. So, you know, when it comes to uh, respecting and implementing WTO rulings, I don't think there's any case at all. You know, it doesn't like WTO in the first place.
3: Well, okay. Uh, So how do you look at this evolving definition of national security in a context of international trade and its potential impact on global trade relations?
4: Okay, Uh, we're going to get into a little bit of a detail. Article 21 essentially says that national security has to be interpreted in a narrow sense. Uh, It has to do only mostly with military issues, defense issues, or uh, nuclear issues. You know, these very much uh, defense-related issues. But today, you know, if you look at what is uh, being under the cover the umbrella of natural security many things are included these days for example um, you know economic sovereignty for example right uh, supply chain um, reliability uh, um, issues like um, uh, issues like um, uh, technology competition um, technology uh, primacy and you know, all these other arguments are being you know, put into this big basket called national security. Uh, so that's that's really the problem. Um, it, it, it's interesting that the United States government used to take a 100 degree different uh, position on this. They used to advocate countries to interpret Article 21 um, in a narrow sense, sticking to the original meaning in Article 21. But these days, you know, it's a 180 degree term. Uh, it's uh, adopting a very, very broad interpretation of, uh, of the Article 21. And, uh, um, and I think uh, moving forward, uh, free trade is more of a rhetoric uh, than anything else uh, based on Washington's perspective.
3: Okay, so what do you think is really behind this 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 shift? Is this all about um, Donald Trump?
4: Well, I think it's more than about Donald Trump. I think there's some difference between Donald Trump. Uh, Joe Biden, uh, even though uh, Biden has inherited quite a few of his uh, measures and policies uh, adopted by Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump is a you know, cross-the-board America first. I think the Biden administration is a little bit more selective um, on certain products it doesn't care, but on products concerning so-called national security, um, uh, essentially you know, concerning um, high-tech stuff, uh, quantum computing, semiconductors, um, uh, what else? AI, yeah, these are, you know, the White House recently issued an executive order um, to prevent uh, American capital from investing in ventures in China concerning these three areas. And actually, Clinton made, you know, call these things as national security technologies. That's what it calls so uh, if there's such a thing called a national security technologies, I mean, predominantly these things are used for civilians. So um, you know, that's, a, um, that's your question. I think uh, even though Biden inherited a lot of things from Donald Trump, there's a quite a bit of a difference here in that Biden focuses on uh, a select uh, set of high-tech technologies. These, these things are uh, representing the future.
1: That was Dr. Zhang Gong, professor with the University of International Business and Economics, Israel. Stay tuned with World Today for more engaging conversations.
2: Hello, I am Dr. Digby James Wren, a political analyst and international relations scholar specializing in China-area studies. World Today offers unmatched in-depth perspectives on China's politics, economics, business, technology and society. World Today's team of reporters and contributors provides valuable information from all of the world's major economies. I hope you can join me on World Today for the very best insights and news from China, on China, and help to build a better understanding of China's role in the world today.
1: You're listening to World Today. China's push for robotics advancement intensifies as it targets wider applications, technological strides, and top-tier industrial clusters. The country's top industry regulator made the announcement during the 2023 World Robot Conference, which kicked off in Beijing on Wednesday. Last year, China's industrial robot installation ranked the first globally, accounting for more than half of the global market share, with industry revenues exceeding 23 billion U.S. dollars. So for more on China's robotics development, joining us on the line is Dr. Yao Shujie, Changhong Professor of Economics at Chongqing University. Uh, How would you describe the current state of China's robotics industry in terms of growth and technological advancements?
5: The Chinese robotic industry has been uh, growing very steadily over the last decade, uh, particularly in the third five-year plant. Uh, the, the revenue and also the production, uh, the installment of the robots across the country increased by about 15% per year. And in the 14th five-year plan, uh, which started from 2020 uh, to 2025, uh, it's going to be accelerated. As you can see, the China is accounting uh, about half of the total robust uh, production and installation uh, in the world. So that means that the demand for robust in China uh, is increasing due to a number of factors, not only Uh, The technological progress, but also the market is uh, increasingly uh, demanding for these kinds of uh, robust technology and also uh, in the production, uh, the manufacturing
6: sector in particular.
1: Professor, could you elaborate on this significance of uh, robotics in measuring a country's development? How does China view uh, robotics as an indicator of its technological innovation and high-end manufacturing capabilities?
5: Yeah, robot is considered to be a a very useful uh, replacement for human labor. Uh, And as the digital technology also is now embedded into the robots, then uh, the function of robots has been uh, increasing and also widening uh, to a a much wider area. So in a sense, the development of robots is actually a significant component of the manufacturing industry and also uh, domestic use. It represents the quality of uh, manufacturing, the quality of industry, so it it is a a very important indicator for the country's economy advancement and also uh, industrialization level. As China is gearing up the transformation from the low and medium-end manufacturing uh, industry into the medium and high-end uh, manufacturing economy, the application of robots is a very important compo- component uh, for this process.
1: Recently, we've seen uh, significant policy support from the Chinese government in this sector. Could you tell us more on some of the key policy initiatives that have contributed to the industry's rapid development?
5: I think in terms of research uh, like and development, the Chinese government has emphasized the, uh, the innovation of the robotic technology, which is now uh, rapidly developing across the board not only in the industrial powerhouse like Beijing, Shanghai, uh, Shenzhen, it's now spreading into uh, the inland cities such as Chengdu and, and Chongqing and Wuhan. So the major metropolitan cities, they have uh, not only uh, uh, you know adopted centralized uh, policy, but also have very innovative uh, policy at the local level. Uh, the first policy is to create some sort of industrial zone that can attract in a high-tech global manufacturing to be uh, working together to create a, a production chain, and also a zone which uh, it requires lot of related uh, industry to be uh, closer together, and the preferential policy for the uh, enterprises in the manufacturing base is um, easily applied and transparent for the manufacturing, for the research and development laboratory. They can uh, benefit from all kinds of uh, government policies because uh, the development of the robot is so important, as we just mentioned. It not only reflects the transformation of the industrial sector, but also it is one of the ambition for China to uh, become a, a far more advanced uh, industrial economy in the world.
1: Mm. So uh,
5: also people training like talents, uh, attracting the, the right people in training of engineering and scientists to work together to, in, to, to become a very important uh, new developing sector in the national economy and also at the regional level.
1: Professor, speaking of local level support policies, the Beijing municipal government has released a comprehensive action plan for robotics development aiming to foster innovation, create high-value products, and lead in robot density per capita. How do you look at the position of Beijing the capital compared to other major powerhouses like Shanghai and Shenzhen in the development of this sector?
5: All the major cities, um, like for example, like the so-called first-tier cities like Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, uh, Guangzhou, and also now the Yeneng city I just mentioned, they are very really, um, you know, proactive in supporting the existing development as well as the uh, production of robots as, uh, in addition to uh, the, the so-called application at the industrial enterprise level. Beijing has low out some very clear uh, policy of supporting the new uh, development of the domestic industry and enterprises. Uh, but you can see that it particularly supported the very high-end research and development. So for the, for those enterprises who are uh, most likely to have a major breakthrough in the robust technology, I think the support is very significant. Uh, Other cities like Shanghai, Shenzhen, they certainly, they don't want to lag behind. But other cities, it depends also uh, according to the industrial structure as well as the financial position. Uh, The EU supported the industry, but the industry, uh, once it established the position in the market, it can also generate a lot of tax revenue uh, for the local government. So they... We try to uh, subsidize first and expect that in the future they will have a better return.
1: Professor, many experts talk about the potential of this sector to bridge the gap between the digital economy and traditional manufacturing. How has the integration of the robotics with technologies like AI and 5G impact China's manufacturing landscape? What are some of the future prospects in this regard?
5: Over the last decade, or, or even uh, longer, uh, since the, the first um, decade of this century, we can see the Chinese economy has undergone rapid transformation. And the transformation has, made, has been uh, critically featured uh, with the digital economy, the AI, uh, 5G, and also the robust technology uh, and, and autom- automation. Uh, in the production process uh, uh lots of uh production for example like uh, mobile phone like uh, automobiles uh if you name it, there are so many uh you know modern uh we can see you know day-to-day industrial products they cannot uh be fully operated with these kinds of technology nowadays so um in in the economic term can uh, you know, the traditional industry being uh, equipped with the digital economy and also the digital economy itself, they can become separate industries. So this is the a, is a so-called dual pillars of the new uh, industrialization, uh, particularly the AI uh, automation, uh, blockchain, and things. They, they all work together to change the landscape of the industrial economy uh, I know, Now, uh, competing neck to neck in many, many fields.
1: Thanks, Dr. Yao, for your time and expertise. That's Dr. Yao Shujie, Changkong Professor of Economics at Chongqing University. Beijing, along with Barcelona and Toronto, has been rated as the most suitable cities for remote work. The Swiss company International Workplace Group conducted the survey, comparing 26 cities on criteria such as climate, culture, accommodation and transport. Beijing's cultural richness, Barcelona's city scene and affordability and Toronto's flexible workspaces were highlighted. As remote work, and workations gain popularity, companies embracing flexible policies aim to enhance work-life balance. The study noted 88% of remote staff worked from anywhere last year, reinforcing the trend towards location-independent work. So to delve into this, let's have Dr. Liu Zhiqing, Senior Fellow of Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies at Renmin University of China. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Liu. Thank you. First of all, how do you look at the results of the survey that Beijing, Barcelona, and Toronto made the top of the list as the most suitable cities for remote work?
6: I think this survey is not surprising us because of two reasons. The first is that Beijing, since many years, has tried to improve the business environment in a friendly way. This friendly way is understood always as the the remote working conditions and the atmosphere that's really getting well improved, especially during the past three years of pandemic, and even before the pandemic year, that the remote working style in Beijing has been already dominating in some special areas. And secondly, that for many companies and young people, they are really very eager to take part in the structure transaction of the new style and the new model of working remotely. In this way, because they find that this remote working is not only for the personal benefit, but also a benefit to the companies' increased efficiency and the quality of working. So all this that has made Beijing from its traditional culture and transportation And uh, from the beautiful landscape and especially from the business atmosphere is really welcomed by the international and the domestic uh, working staffs.
1: As you said, Beijing performed exceptionally well in categories such as culture, accommodation, transport costs. Do you have any personal experiences of working remotely? Have you found any the city's unique blend of historical charm and contemporary amenities enhance your remote work?
6: Yeah, that's true. That it, it Before days that we had a very uh, frequently that the remote work, Remote working uh, together with other cities from Beijing. So for, for instance, uh, my uh, my hometown is in Jiangsu. When I uh, have to do some jobs and, uh, and negotiations, and uh, even very complicated technical exchanges, we have to take some remote working and then remote uh, remote dis- discussions and remote uh, other. Uh, efforts in, in this way that we can do a lot of jobs. So that's why we feel very charming and also very uh, special that to implement all these working uh, jobs and uh, facilities that made that uh, Beijing is really more effective in working uh, remotely. If you go to Beijing farm, there's a bigger house that uh, for shared uh, offices and shared uh, this is for young uh, generation they are really working remotely every day
1: there the pandemic as you mentioned earlier was the factor that initially drove the surge in popularity of remote work how has this evolved into the hybrid work model we see today which offers opportunity to work wherever people will be the most productive
6: I think uh, because of the two factors. The one factor is that all this remote working model uh, this came from the demand of the market because of the objective conditions. Sometimes, as we mentioned, always the pandemic is one reason. The other before the pandemic, we had already tried to help the remote working. For instance, extreme stay when the weather is having storm or the heavy. Really. So many people really prefer to stay uh, at home and uh, to have a remote working style. So all the market demand is the first the driving force. And the secondly, the, the people are really uh, wish to have more time for working, not the time for transportation or for traveling around from the city east to the west because of this uh, transportation uh, jamming in Beijing. So this... They have more working time if, if by the remote style. So in this way, we can see that all the traditional uh, working style has been really shifted and also retransformed to another way. So this is uh, one of the best ways for us to make a choice.
1: Then, from companies' perspective, as they are embrace this work for anywhere policies, in what ways do businesses stand to benefit from hybrid work uh, patterns?
6: But uh, in, in my opinion, we should understand there are some uh, differences in understanding this remote working style. This is not uh, uh, suitable for all uh, work workers, uh, you know, working field, especially for more professionals, for real economies, for the production, for their, even for the complicated uh, design uh, implications. So all this field uh, that cannot be always started, done by the remote uh, working. But actually, when we are talking about the hybrid working days, uh, we have to see that all the combination of different technologies and the different ways of thinking, different ways of equipment, but this, uh, we can make this a uh, uh, joint advantage of this uh, uh, hybrid technologies.
1: Indeed. Thanks, Dr. Liu. That's Liu jiqing senior fellow of Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies at Renmin University of China. That's all the time for this edition of World Today. Bye for now.